This morning we're reading from the book of Esther, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for them. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, what, now what is your petition? It will be given you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king has had honored him and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. His wife and Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up reaching to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go to the king, go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. Chapter six. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? 
Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to read to, to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he had set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the king uh, or let, let them rope the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, An adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Habona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided.
Good morning. Uh, let me begin with a question. How did you sleep last night? Some of you here, you can tell you've rested well, you're ready for the day. Some of you here, you know, bleary-eyed. Uh, some of you here, I can see parents of little children, babies even. You're thinking, what is sleep anyway? Each of us will sleep differently. Some days you have good nights, some days you have bad nights. And yet it's just an ordinary part of life. It's just the day-to-day, the night-by-night. And yet, of course, what we find in our passage this morning, in our story this morning, it ends up being the turning point of the entire passage. It ends up being the turning point of the entire book. It ends up being a crucial turning point for the fate of God's people. How did you sleep? Such an ordinary thing, and yet such a crucial turning point here in the book of Esther. See, as we've been going through this book of Esther, you'll, you'll remember the past few weeks, we've been seeing these challenges get worse and worse for God's people. Uh, their situation goes further and further down. And as these challenges mount up, at the same time, we've been holding on to these glimpses, these promises, uh, hints that God is in control. No, God will rescue his people. Well, the question is then, how will he come through for them? How will he bring this about? And what we find in our passage today is that God overturns the enemy's plans. He overturns the enemy's plans. He doesn't just bring it to a halt. He doesn't just stop him from getting away with it. No, he flips it over. He turns it over. He turns it back on him. God overturns the enemy's plan. See, as we look through our passage today, uh, you see what drives the enemy, Haman. It's fueled by this pride. It's ugly. It's off-putting. This pride fuels his plan. It leads him to evil. But then by the end of the passage, that evil does not prevail. It's brought to a halt. It's brought to an end. But not just brought to an end. No, it's turned over on him. It's turned back on his head. God overturns the enemy's plan. That's the pattern that we'll find in our passage this morning. And of course, that turning point is a sleepless night. God is at work, even in the most ordinary parts of our daily existence. This ordinary event is where God overturns the enemy's plan. And my prayers as we see this uh, passage unfold, and of course I should say a big thank you for patiently working our way through the book of Esther. It's been slowly building up to this point. As Michael said, we've eventually reached the climax. My prayers as we see this climax unfold, our vision will be filled afresh with how great our God is. This isn't just a fun little story. This isn't just a fun little fairy tale that makes you smile, that's satisfying to read. No, this is a story that lifts our gaze and shows us afresh how great our God is. And so with that in mind, why don't we jump in then and look at how the enemy's plan is fueled by pride. You see, by way of context, Haman, you'll remember, Haman is presented as the enemy of God's people. He's the one who sets himself up against them. He sets himself up against God. And so he's put into motion this plan, this plan to destroy all of God's people. And in our passage this morning, that comes to a point where he puts in this plan to kill Mordecai in particular. And of course, you'll see that this plan, it comes in the context of Esther's plan. 
Now this plan to destroy Mordecai, it comes in the context of Esther's plan to save God's people. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. And we remember where we left off last week. It was a sort of a cliffhanger. Esther had called a fast from God's people. They'd be calling out to God. And Esther said, she's going to go for it. She's going to risk everything. She's going to put everything on the line to identify with God's people and their need. Well, she does it. She follows through on what she promised. She risks everything. She approaches the throne. And of course, in the end, it's successful. Verse 2, the king was pleased with her. He holds out the gold scepter. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. She's in. She's in. Here she has this opportunity in the place of power to represent her people. And so in the following verses, we see how she sets out this plan. Stage one, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. Uh, verse three, you see the, the king says, what is your request? Uh, what is your petition? Well, come to a banquet, verse four, that I prepared for you. Uh, the king loves a good banquet. We already know that about him. And so he's there and he brings Haman immediately. And then it repeats itself again. Uh, verse five, verse six, the king asks, well, well, what is your petition? What is your request? Well, then we get to stage two of the plan. I'll come back again tomorrow. Verse seven. Esther replied, my petition and my request, it's this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Another banquet, another day. Now what is Esther doing here? Is she, is she getting cold feet over the plan? Is she dithering, not, not being sure what to do? Now what she's doing is remarkable. She is securing the king's favor. But see what's happened by, up to, uh, by this point. The king has now publicly promised to give her her wish three times. It's ripe for the picking. But we have to wait. And we have to wait till tomorrow. And as we wait, Haman's plan takes shape. And as we look at this plan takes shape in the rest of chapter 5, we see what kind of person Haman is. See, for Haman, his world revolves around himself. Pride fuels his plan. Just look at how he reacts in verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai, the king's gate, and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. He walks out that day on his commute home. He's, he's on top of the world. You know, maybe a stretching day in the office, being the second most powerful person in the kingdom. And he's on his way home, after having been invited to a private banquet with the king and queen. You can almost imagine him skipping along as he's walking home, humming a tune maybe. And yet like the flick of a switch, he goes from being filled with joy to being filled with fury. It's revealing, isn't it? It shows you what's kind of going on in his head. It reveals how he views himself. See, he demands this recognition from everyone that he walks by. Perhaps in his mind, he already knows, well, look, the king and the queen recognize how great I am. 
They just invited me to a private banquet. I'm off again tomorrow. Everyone should recognize how great he is. And when they don't, well, then he blows up. All it takes is one person to push him off. Because he thinks his world revolves around him. See, in Haman's world, he is the greatest. Put it this way, he, he has everything, right? And yet he can't enjoy any of it, it seems. It makes me think of this line from C.S. Lewis. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Well, that's Haman. Except his, it's insatiable. He has to have everything. Uh, we skip ahead to verse 13. He says it with his friends and his wife. All this gives me no satisfaction. It's nothing to him as he sees Mordecai refusing to recognize his greatness. You see, his world revolves around himself. He wants every knee to bow. He wants every tongue to confess that Haman is great. His world revolves around him. You see it in how he speaks as well. In verse 10, he calls together his friends and his wife. And just look at how everything he says relates to him. Verse 11, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. It's as if he'd forgotten that everyone already knows this. He's not saying anything new. Of course all his friends would know how rich and powerful he is. Uh, you would have thought that his wife knew how many sons they had, but that doesn't stop him from telling them. No, it's all about him. Oh, and that's not all, verse 12. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited me, invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. There's another one as well tomorrow. Him, him, him. Everything relates to him. Now, of course, we'll be familiar with the more blatant examples of this in our lives. You know, the people you meet that just love talking. And they love talking about themselves. Uh, you, you, you meet them, you have a conversation with them, and you, know, you, you start a little counter in your head. You think, oh, how many questions are they going to ask me? And you know, it remains at a big fat zero. Uh, it's just this long reel of accolades and achievements. And you're like, well, I never even asked you, but thank you for telling me. Uh, blatant forms of that. But of course, there's subtle ways in which we see this, right? Internal ways, silent ways. Uh, even when we listen, uh, just think of how easy it is when you're listening to someone share how easy it is to be preoccupied not with showing interest in what they're sharing but with seeing how that relates to you or how that impacts me how that compares with me how that competes with what I'm after. Uh, think of it this way, maybe it's a trivial example. Think of a group photo. You go out for a meal uh, you go out for a hike, maybe even the family hike this afternoon. And, and what happens by the end of the day? Well, the group photo gets shared on the WhatsApp group. When you load up that photo, who do you look at first? Who do you zoom in? You know, make sure the hair's right, you're not blinking, you know. It's trivial matters. And yet, it's so easy, right? We see it everywhere. On here, Haman is put on large display. It's all about him. You see it in how he reacts. You see it in how he speaks. You see it in how he thinks. If we skip ahead to chapter 6, 
verse 6. We'll come back to the events a bit later. But, but you get this incredible window into his heart. You see how he thinks. Uh, verse 6, the king asks him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Well, now Haman thought to himself, oh, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? I mean, that's revealing in and of itself. But look at what he asks for. And he answered the king, oh, well, I've never thought about this before, but now that you mention it, well, for the king, the man the king delights to honor, let him bring royal, a royal robe the king has worn, a horse that the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princesses, uh, princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, lead him on horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Uh, do you see what he's asking for? He's not asking for stuff. He's got all the stuff. Now what does he want? He wants to be seen as king. He wants to be dressed as the king. He wants to be robed as the king. He wants to be proclaimed, recognized as great. His world revolves around himself. Put it this way, here is a man who considers that equality with the king is something to be grasped. Here is someone who wants a name above every name. See, as we look at Haman, you see how his world revolves around him. And as a result, this, this pride leads to an evil plan. See, verse 14, it's chilling. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits. Ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. The suggestion delighted Haman and he had the poll set up remember what Haman has done already he has published an edict he's manipulated the king to publish a law to destroy an entire group of people and yet that's still not enough for him no he wants to get rid of this one man Mordecai he wants to they suggest impaling him uh, this pole it would be almost 25 meters tall the idea here is that you would hoist him up and as you kill him, he is utterly humiliated. I mean, that's a chilling line at the end. This idea, this suggestion delighted Haman. It brings a smile to his face. It brings him satisfaction. It brings him joy. His world revolves around himself. And this pride, it leads to evil. You see, when we look at pride displayed in Haman, you start to recognize it's not just a personality quirk. It's not just one of those oddities. You think, oh, you know, it's just, just the way Haman is. He's always been like this. It's not just a different culture. Oh, well, you know, everyone's a bit different. It's not just a different approach to life. No, you look at this and you say, this is ugly. I mean, this is seriously off-putting. Because if the world revolves around him, what room is there for others? What room is there for anyone else? Put it this way, whenever have you seen someone that's fueled by pride build others up? When have you ever seen pride be life-giving to those around them? No, it, it hurts people. It tramples on other people. It leads to evil. 
And we see this, of course, throughout history. I mean, you go through those big names of famous people through history who have caused atrocities. And you can be pretty sure that their world revolved around themselves. They puffed themselves up in pride. And we see it not just in the past, we see it now across the news. Terrible things happening. Why? Fueled by this kind of pride. Of course, in small and more subtle ways, we experience it in our day-to-day life. People we interact with. People we work with, perhaps. As you look at Haman, you see that his world revolves around him. And as a result, Mordecai is put in such peril. We're just on the cusp of Esther going through with a plan to try to save God's people. But now it seems like it might be too late. You see, when we look at this plan against Mordecai, we don't just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, it's not that bad. No, we want it to, we don't want it to prevail. When we see evil like this, we want it to fail. We want it to backfire on him. Uh, Think of these proverbs you might be familiar with. That pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. We want that to be true. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it. If someone rolls a stone, it will roll back on them. We want to believe that that is what will happen. But Mordecai, well, the clock is ticking. We're waiting here, powerless, waiting for Esther's plan to come through. And so what hope is there for people like Mordecai who are surrounded by proud enemies around them? Well, of course, what follows is a truly remarkable turn of events. See, we've looked at how the enemy's plan is fueled by pride. And what we then see is that the enemy's plan is overturned by God. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. As you read through these verses, uh, they find out that uh, they, they turned up to Mordecai's part, how he exposed that assassination plot. And they realized that they'd never honored him yet. They'd never repaid him for his great act of loyalty. And they think about what should be done, and then Haman arrives. Throughout all of these things, you, you read this, and you just think, wow, how convenient. We're balanced on the edge of Mordecai losing his life. And yet that very night, The king can't sleep. Now I'm sure he would have had a whole host of things available to him for for late night entertainment. And yet, what does he choose? He chooses the chronicles of his reign. And where do they turn up to? Well, they turn up to Mordecai's record. Uh, Maybe it's almost like one of those Bible in a year plans. They're just reading through these chronicles. And they turn up. Where's the bookmark? Well, Mordecai's entry. Uh, we said a few weeks ago, oh, Mordecai was left unrewarded. He was left hanging. Wow, how convenient that he was. And that it's brought up at just this moment. And of course, Haman arrives. I think, friends, you think all these moments, they're just right. Oh, what if Mordecai had been rewarded there and then? Oh, he would have lost this opportunity. And what if the king slept well? Very possible. Uh, what if the king fell asleep? Perhaps one of the reasons for reading these chronicles is it's sort of like a bedtime reading. Um, one, of the, uh, 
One of my favorite quotes on this, one commentator says, even these days, the hypnotic effect of a droning human voice is a recognized way of inducing sleep. That's great. In fact, I mean, you read stories to your kids, right? There have been times when I've been reading them a story to put them to sleep, and I've literally fallen asleep while reading the story. And so if, you, if, if, if you've got trouble sleeping tonight, just, just put on the Ambassador podcast. You'll be fine. <laughs> you see, the king could have fallen asleep. I mean, these records, they wouldn't have been exciting. And yet it pricks his attention. Oh, what's happened to Mordecai? Nothing. What should we do for Mordecai? Haman arrives. How convenient. And the thing is, none of these things are particularly noteworthy. Uh, they wouldn't make the front line of the news. King couldn't sleep. No, that's just an ordinary part of life. None of this stops you in your tracks. In fact, a sleepless night is such a, it's a thing that's so out of our hands. And yet this is the way in which God overturns the enemy's plan. You see, up until this point, everything has been getting worse and worse for God's people. But from this point, well, things turn around. And you'll have seen that begin to happen already as we read through the passage. Uh, God is at work even in the ordinary. Uh, one commentator that I've been finding super helpful throughout this series is a lady called Karen Jobes. A fantastic scholar, loads of great insights. And one of the things that she shows for Esther here is the way the whole book is laid out, it's structured. Uh, a whole load of feasts. In fact, they come in pairs of feasts. And right in the middle here, we see this pair of feasts. And she lays it out. And she shows us that right in the middle, what is it? Chapter 6, verse 1. The king couldn't sleep. Uh, in fact, just to add to that, the, the, the places that the chronicles are mentioned, only in three places, at the start, at the end, and again, chapter 6, verse 1. This is the turning point. This is the turning point of the entire story. And this is what she says then of how uh, God's providence rules. God providentially directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals to fulfill the promises of his covenant. What a great God we serve. Any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives, through millennia of time, to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. God delivered an entire race of people in Persia because the king had a sleepless night, because a man would not bow to his superior, because a woman found herself taken to the bedroom of a ruthless man for a night of pleasure. How inscrutable, how beyond our understanding are the ways of the Lord. See, Haman's plan was overturned. It was literally overturned overnight. And what we end up finding is that his plan for himself ends up being given to Mordecai and we've seen how he, he lays out this great wish list for himself. And the, the words are almost comical. Verse 10. Well, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Just imagine how Haman's heart would have sank as he heard those words. It's almost as if the king's rubbing in. Of course, he doesn't know what's happening. But he reminds him, do just as you asked. Oh, that list, that sounds like a great list. I can't believe you came up with such a great itinerary for the man the king delights to honor. Oh, make sure you do every single bit. Uh, right at the end of verse 10, do not neglect anything you have recommended. He rubs it into him. 
what would have been Haman's dream becomes an absolute nightmare. Just think of how bitter the words are for Haman. Verse 11, he got the robe and the horse. He rode Mordecai, leads him through. This is the, what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I mean, just take any football rivalry, NFL rivalry, any sports team. Try to get a diehard fan to praise the rival team. You, wouldn't, you won't get them. Just think of how bitter those words are for Mordecai. Of course, he's filled with grief and shame afterwards. Verse 12, Mordecai returns to the king's gate, but Haman, well, he rushed home with his head covered in grief. He told his Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. See, Mordecai was led through the place where in chapter 4 he was weeping and wailing, now with praise and adoration. He goes through the place that he was clothed in sackcloth and ashes, now robed with a royal robe. He gets some prophetic words almost in verse 13 and 14. He goes back home with his friends, his advisors, and his, and his wife. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. They start to think, maybe something bigger is going on. Even they start to recognize, maybe someone is at work here. God overturns. The enemy's plan. What Haman had planned for himself, it goes to Mordecai. But of course, what he planned for Mordecai comes upon himself. In chapter 7, he walks right into it. He's whisked away to the next banquet. Once again, the king lays out his question. What is your request? What is your petition? Esther comes through on her promise. She identifies with the people. Verse 4, I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. King Xerxes is enraged. Who would dare try to kill his queen, his queen's people? And there's this kind of ultimate mic drop moment from Esther. Verse 6. An adversary and an enemy. This vile Haman. I know it's rude to point, but you can just picture her pointing at Haman across the table. I mean, Haman would have been shocked. He's exposed for who he is. His heart must have sank. He's terrified, we read verse 7. The king gets up enraged. Haman, ironically, he falls to his knees. I mean, he's desperate for the world to come down to the knees for him. And here he is on his knees begging for his life from the people he tried to get rid of. And everything else that happens, well, you can't help but think, how convenient. The king goes out in a rage. He's at a loss as to what to do. But when he comes back, where is Haman? Oh, falling on the couch in front of Esther. Haman! Haman! As soon as um, the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she's here with me? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And this has got to be one of the greatest lines. I mean, perfect kind of timing as far as punchline goes. Harbona pipes up. Verse, uh, verse, verse 9. A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands at Haman's house. He had a set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king remember. How convenient. Haman, Haman, Haman. So the king says, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. See, what he had planned for Mordecai was given to himself. There's poetic justice here. He gets his just desserts. He gets turned over on his head. 
God doesn't just bring his plan to a stop. He doesn't just protect Mordecai. He overturns the enemy's plan. That's how God rescues his people. Now we see that here at Mordecai. It'll be reflected for the rest of God's people and the rest of Esther. And of course, we've been seeing all the way through actually, this is the shape of salvation. This is how God rescues his people through Jesus Christ. Jesus was surrounded by proud enemies in his life and ministry. They were determined to get rid of him. And yet, of course, they couldn't. God overturned the enemy's plans. He flipped it on its head. You think of the pattern we get in Genesis 50, verse 20, for example. It puts words to this shape. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. In some ways, we've seen this already throughout the book of Esther, how God is at work even when evil forces are arrayed. But we get a wonderful picture of it here, a fresh glimpse of it. This phrase again and again, the man the king delights to honor, the man the king delights to honor. Who is that man? Well, of course, Jesus Christ is the man, the, truly the man that the king delights to honor. Even though he had all the forces of evil arrayed against him, he wasn't defeated. No, he was vindicated. He was exalted. Given a name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. See, as we see how God overturns the enemy's plan, we see his power put on display. At work, even through the most ordinary circumstances, not even evil can prevail against it. Now, it doesn't mean that we can predict what's going to happen. <clears throat> it doesn't stop bad things from being bad things. It doesn't stop difficult circumstances from being difficult. But it does assure us that God is at work. He is at work even in the most ordinary moments. Friends, as you see God overturning the enemy's plans, this is good news. It's good news that you look out through history and see, you see the atrocities done by proud people. This is good news as you read the news now, as you see that pride inflicting an evil on other people. It's good news as we interact with people, even now in our normal lives, who seem so fueled by pride. And yet the good news goes deeper. Because what we find here is, in fact, actually also good news for those who have proud hearts within them. Not just those who face proud enemies around them. Now, this is good news for those who have proud hearts within them. Friends, so far, we've been, as we've been looking at Haman, we laugh at him. We cheer at his downfall. And yet, if we're honest, there's a challenge as well. It's so relatable in some ways. Now, we're not like Haman. He's different from us. And yet, we see something of him in our hearts, don't we? And we said earlier that when you're listening to other people, how easy it is to be preoccupied with, not with them, but with ourselves. Comparing ourselves with them, competing with them. Even as we serve, even at church, we can find it so easy to have our minds and our goals fixed on being recognized for what we're doing. Uh, just think of when we're talking. This was brought home to me earlier this week. I came home from work, started sharing with Wendy about my day, and it was dreadful. I didn't ask a single question. I don't know how long I spoke for, but I just kept sharing. 
But it wasn't even just sharing. It was, <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, I've been reading, prepping for this that day. I mean, it sounded just like Haman. I mean, it sounded like this long list. This is how important I am. This is all the, the thoughts I've been having today, the conversations I've been having today. I mean, in some ways it's kind of funny, but at the same time, it's dreadful. The thing is, I can't even say that it's just an accident. Oh, yeah, I'm not normally like that. I'm just a bit tired. No. That's me. That's what my heart is like. My world revolves around me. And friends, if that is the case, what room is there for other people? What room is there for God in our hearts? What hope is there? We rejoice as we see God thwart the enemy's plans. But what if we look more like the enemy than we want to think? What hope is there? Well, friends, once again, as you see how God overturns the enemy's plan through Jesus Christ, that is where we find good news. Not just if there's proud enemies around us. No, even if we, if we have proud hearts within us. Jesus Christ was the man the king delights to honor. He is the one who is exalted above all others. And yet he is also the only one who is truly humble. See, Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be clung onto. No, he gave himself, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, even to the point of death. As you see Mordecai paraded through the streets, you get this little glimpse of Jesus as exalted. And yet at the same time, you also remember how <laughs> he wasn't led through the streets in a royal robe. No, friends, he was led through the streets of Jerusalem with a crown of thorns. He wasn't paraded to great shouts of adoration and praise of all the, those onlookers. No, he was led through the streets, humiliated under scorn and shame. He wasn't lifted up for everyone to see how great he was. No, he was hoisted up and impaled on a cross. And friends, he did that for us. He did that for people just like us, for proud people just like us. So that we can be forgiven. So that if we put our faith and trust in him, we can be forgiven. We no longer have to be enemies. And so that we could be transformed. Friends, as you see God overturning the enemy's plan, it doesn't just put God's power on display. No, it puts Christ's beauty on display. And it's when you are captivated by that, when you are gripped by that, that is what will take our gaze off ourselves. That is what will melt our hearts out of our pride. Friends, as we finish, do you want to stop being, living as if the world revolves around you? Do you want to stop being so consumed by comparing and competing and, and promoting yourself? Do you want to instead give yourself in humble service? Do you want to be marked by this eager desire to see Christ exalted, not ourselves? Well then, friends, let us pray that by the power of God's Spirit, we will be captivated afresh by the beauty we see in Christ's humility as God overturns the enemy's plan so that our sights would not be set 
on ruling our own kingdom, but instead that our vision might be filled with how great God is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are in control. And we thank you that as you overturn the enemy's plan, that is for us, even though we look scarily like the enemy. Uh, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts to coax us out of our pride, that our vision might be filled with your greatness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.